Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're speaking to Tyler Barris, Chief Science Officer and co-founder of Area 2 Farms in Arlington, Virginia. Tyler has a range of urban agricultural experience, from homesteading to commercial hydroponics. But I'll let Nadia tell you more about Tyler. Thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Welcome to our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Tyler Barris, otherwise known as Farmer Tyler. He's the author of two DIY hydroponics books and another book about growing hydroponic lettuce um, with Port Americas. And he's also the co-founder of Area 2 Farms, a new indoor vertical farm in Washington, D.C. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to our podcast. Yay. Howdy, Dr. Greenhouse. Uh, excited <laughs> to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on our What Plants Crave podcast series. Um, you know, we've known each other for a long time, um, but I'm actually really excited to learn more about you and about the plants that you grow because you've grown a lot of different plants and the quirks of growing those plants indoors and in greenhouses because I know you have experience with both and all over the country in different regions and climates. So this is going to be a really interesting uh, conversation, I think. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey with hydroponics and controlled environment agriculture. All right. So I uh, started at University of Florida, studied horticulture, and uh, sort of stumbled into horticulture. I began in engineering and randomly took a plant physiology class and started seeing all the badass shit plants do. Can I say badass? Yes, absolutely. Okay. The badass shit that plants do. It is just amazing. Like the way they respond to the climate and the way you can start to read their language or the way they react to pretty much all these ways that we mess with them. And that pretty much just got me hooked on plants. So after University of Florida, then was looking for a job and there was a greenhouse in Florida that was uh, one of the first certified organic hydroponic farms. I went up and asked for a job and got one, but uh, it ended up mostly just being picking tomatoes and planting lettuce seeds. And it was a good year of uh, really learning what farm work is like. It it's was, hard work, uh, isn't it? It is very hard work. Yeah, I went from school, you know, I got pretty much straight A's and was like, I'm about to be a farm manager. I'm head grower now and go to the real world. And I am picking tomatoes and doing just really hard work. When you were but, doing that hard work, were you able to apply anything that you had learned in college during those horticulture and plant physiology classes? Maybe like 5%. Okay. It was sort of shocking how little I was able to apply. You know, in future years, as I got more in, like later down when I was doing like fertilizer calculations and getting more into IPM management, then it was tied a little bit more into like my, what my degree, but 
No, I, I think I learned more in the first three months than I did in four years of school. Um, that sounds about right. It was definitely uh, an intense awakening, but didn't really break my love for plants. Definitely was still really into it. And I was running the farmer's markets on Sunday or Saturdays. So I'd grow the plants all week and then take it to the farmer's market. And uh, just like a very romantic sort of intro of like hard farm work and then selling my produce at the market. And even though it was just very intense work, it was definitely very fulfilling. You were literally reaping what you sowed. I reaped it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 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 So um, after uh, Florida, then I went to Denver. I didn't have anything lined up. I just like, I'm going to go to Colorado. They just made weed legal. Let's go check that out. And on the way out there, I was listening to a podcast and they had this contest for uh, you submit a video about why you should make it into this master grower program. And I pulled over, pretty much recorded a quick video, submitted it. The next day they told me I won. What? Um, <laughs> it was this uh, yeah, school called THC University. Ah. So then um, I, when I got there, I was like, okay, now I have something to do. Uh, so I took the class first. Or I went to the first class and they realized I knew a lot and they hired me. So then I started making the classes um, and teaching people how to grow weed. I'd actually never grown weed myself, (laughs) but it was fun. So I sort of got into the the cannabis industry a little bit. I was doing that for maybe like three months to six months-ish kind of. And I, I quickly realized I was missing that sort of fulfillment I was getting back in Florida with like the farmer's markets and bringing produce. And it was just very warm. I felt like was the veg, veggie world. And even though the canvas world was fun, I just wasn't feeling that warmth. So then I went and looked for a new job, I stumbled upon, uh, it's called the Grow House, H-A-U-S House. Uh, they're a nonprofit in downtown Denver, of a 5,000 square foot uh, greenhouse growing hydroponic butterhead lettuce, selling to Whole Foods. Walked in the door and saw their founder and he said, our head grower just quit a month ago. So I did a little quick, tour around the farm and said, look at, this is this, this is powdery mildew, this is things. And then they hired me as the head grower. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> amazing. an interesting journey. <laughs> it was, it was very odd. You know, it was a very small farm, but it definitely, and now I was responsible for the crop. Now I was really having to make decisions, you know, run a labor team, harvesting and selling to Whole Foods with their high level of expectations. So definitely a pretty solid intro into managing a commercial operation and trying to make it profitable. Because even though we were part of a nonprofit, the farm operated as a profit sort of generator, you know, in in theory. We were, we were barely just breaking even though. Did you find the same warmth in that experience that you had uh, in Florida with the farmer's markets? Oh, 100%. It was just like, it was amazing. We did tours. There was kids coming through. You know, you give them an esturgeon flower and you watch them eat it and it just like burns their face off because it's so like intense. You know, there's like all those little fun moments of like, yeah, bringing kids around. I was teaching hydroponics classes. We had volunteer days where there'd be like 20, 30 volunteers coming into the farm to help us harvest, which was an absolute nightmare. No actual commercial farm should ever have that many volunteers. It was disasters. But um so many were people just like so interested in helping or i mean yeah. was it people over and over that came to volunteer 
or new people? You know, there's people really like urban agriculture. It's pretty cool. You know, we were running an internship program that pretty much just asked people to do free work. And I was interviewing people nonstop for this internship. I probably trained about 50 interns over two years and got jobs for like 90% of them. So it was uh, also a solid introduction into education, which I really liked. And then I really started doing more Farmer Tyler stuff, which is videos and social media and blogs and trying to just share the knowledge that I was somewhat gaining. You know, I probably thought I knew more than I actually did as the that curve sort of goes where you start learning and then you realize, oh, I know a lot. Oh, wait, no, I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you realize you, you know what you don't know. You get to a point where you know what you don't know, right? Yeah. 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 So then I yeah, started doing a lot more videos. And one of my idols for a long time is this guy, P. Allen Smith. He has a PBS gardening show. He pretty much just has this big mansion in Arkansas where he walks around and does like gardening projects and videotapes them. He's sort of like the male Martha Stewart. So I wanted to be him pretty much. Uh, So I was like trying to do these videos and uh, he ended up having a video contest similar to like the THC university contest where you make a video, submit it. And if you win, you get to be on his show. So I submitted a video and then the next week they told me I won that one. So then, yeah, it was video contests. They've really changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) So flew out there, did a show with him and it went really well. And they invited me back a few times, started doing shows with them and then started going to some of the blogging conferences that uh, Pion Smith uh, and his team were inviting me to where I started really meeting a lot more of the blogger world, garden blogger world. And that's where some of the connections came for me to start doing these DIY hydroponic books where publishers were looking, you know, they're asking their other garden writers, hey, do you know anyone who knows hydroponics? And then they were like, oh, this is Farmer Tyler kid. Then I started getting book offer deals. It was, uh, it really was amazing how it just sort of dominoed of things starting to, to line up. And I started doing a local PBS gardening uh, segment called Garden Tech with Farmer Tyler uh, that was in Denver. Then eventually I met Chris Higgins, our mutual friend at Hort Americas. And he said he wanted to build a demo greenhouse in Dallas and asked if I could do it. He saw that uh, I was able to run the somewhat... Uh, I don't know how to say it nicely, I guess shitty system at the grow house. Uh, it was a very bad hydroponic system, but it was somewhat able to make it run. So he thought that I guess I was cut out then to do whatever he wanted to do, which was pretty much make a bunch of shitty systems work. No, just kidding. It was, uh, it was actually really good. Anyways, let me rewind. I met Chris. He wanted me to be a manager and design this greenhouse in Texas. So started working for him, flew down to Texas, and we built out this 10,000 square foot greenhouse with all these different hydroponic systems uh, to collect data on yield and labor efficiency, DWC, NFT, vertical towers, sort of all the most popular hydroponic systems at the time for leafy greens. And then... With all that data, I wrote up a book and put that out. And then while I was there, I started doing a lot more Farmer Tyler videos. Uh, Hydro started working with Hydro Farm. They were sponsoring some videos, did some more books, a lot of da da da. Then eventually I left Texas, went to California, worked for Plenty for a couple of years. I was, a, was their new product development grower. So I designed their organic program and did their chef program. Uh, I was selling to a couple of Michelin star restaurants, testing like hundreds of varieties to see what we could commercialize. 
Uh, then after that, did a bunch of consulting work, uh, visiting all these types of farms, just, yeah, across the, from east to west, all like the biggest vertical farms was able to to get into most of them and help out a little bit. It was uh, definitely awesome to sort of see what's behind the curtain of so many of these places. There's so much secrecy in this industry and it's usually not deserved because there's really not that many secrets. Usually you're just growing a plant and you're giving it some LED light. There's not too much crazy secret sauce. Thank you for saying that. And we're going to come back to that later. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's some secret sauce. What people think is the secret sauce is not the secret sauce. Right. And then I met my co-founder of Area 2 Farms, uh, Oren. We started uh, brainstorming on some ideas of you know what I'd seen working in the industry and how we could sort of just push that further. A lot of it is on scale, which was really surprising to me. I've been to a lot of these indoor farms and so many of the large ones, a lot of the ones that are getting a lot of attention really are not profitable. It's really labor heavy. They've really gone hardcore into monocultures where now they have such scale, they have to sell to through distributors and they have the worst margins. They're pretty much competing with commodity crops from the field and just have like scale has actually driven them into a hole and where the folks I'd seen actually doing fairly well with indoor ag was about 10,000, 5,000 square feet um, where it was owner operated, maybe have three to five employees. You're doing the harvesting, you're selling it to the customers. And it really was like a more of a small farm operation where a lot of these farmers were actually making money. And I, I really, I really like that. It almost, it more ties in that feeling that I was getting in Florida of like that warmth of like the farmer is the one who's growing and also selling it directly to, you know, the final end consumer. You're not in this huge factory of like 200 employees where you have one job, you're just seeding or you're just cutting a leaf and you really don't see the full process. You don't really have that like as much invested into the crop because you really just feel like you're just handling one little operation. You know, you're just making widgets pretty much because it's just, it's really removed the romance of growing the produce. I feel like at that scale, at least like, unless the people get to do a lot of different parts of the farm, a lot of times you're just stuck into one little thing. Um, Like all I do is sanitation. All I do is wash pots all day. All I do is trim leaves. And yeah, there's a spot for that. But I, I think, you know, farming... It's such hard work and the margins are so thin that the people have to be really invested. And to be invested, you need to really see the full story. You need to have some ownership in it. And I think that's where the scale gets tricky. Sorry. Okay. I'm babbling for a long time. No, no, no. I will. I mean, you're saying some really good stuff in there. And yeah, just like you said, some people are focused on sanitation. Some people are focused on germination. Some people are focused on harvesting or packaging that I've, I've been through, you know, several farms. Now we, we work with clients who are moving in the, da- in that direction. And some say that it's for efficiency, right? Which, yeah. Same thing over and over, right? It's the, it's the Ford model, or we also hear biosecurity, right? So that people aren't moving from a dirty room to a clean room and, and, you know, moving all about moving the powdery mildew along with them. I get that. But I do think that what you're saying is true is that, you know, at least rotate people through different jobs while they're there. So, because you don't necessarily realize how important 
germination is to the final product in, you know, in your, in your mature plant area, or if you're in a cannabis facility, how important the mother and clone plants are to the final, final flower product. And by rotating people, it seems like, you know, your team can maybe, maybe new ideas come up, maybe, you know, something clicks and they're like, oh, you know, we were doing that over there. I bet it's affecting what we're seeing in the product, in the final product quality. Um, But by having them all separate, I wonder what, what does get lost in not just the feel and the warmth, but also in the final product that you end up selling. Definitely. I I think, you know, it also comes to responsibility of like, oh, the farm's failing. Well, it's not my fault. I did my little part, right? Right. Yep. And yeah, you just don't feel attached to it. You know, another part is, you know, the ownership part. What I've been seeing a lot in the new farms is there's no yield incentives or sales incentives for the growers or for any of the workers. There's no benefit to them, whether the farm does well or not. There's no incentive. incentive. And people work pretty well under incentive. You know, I think there should always be a living wage that they should get. But I think when people, you know, can directly see that they have some ownership of if this does well, this does well for me. Not only does it make me happy because these are really healthy plants and like this is, looks awesome, we're killing it, you know, but that there's some kind of actual real benefit for them for the farm to work because people need to be invested for this. You know, a farm is not a 40 hour a week job. You might have a flood, you might have an alarm, you know, someone's gonna have to run in the middle of the night or something. You know, it shouldn't be often if you have a really, you know, if you designed it well, but still there's, there's those types of things. And if someone's gonna, you know, get out of bed slowly and say, oh, I don't need to be there. I'll get there in a couple hours and the farm's flooded and everything's dead. You know, if it doesn't matter to them, it doesn't matter. I, I even yeah. sort of the, the analogy to me with an indoor plant environment is that we're constantly educating people that it's not just lights. It's not just temperature. It's not just CO2. It's not just water. It's all and nutrients. It's all the things combined together that your plant will have its peak performance, whether that's a quality or yield or both, when all of those elements are optimized together. Um, And, and I kind of feel the same way about the operations of, of, of a farm is that the more that all of those tasks and processes work together and the more that people know about how, you know, raising the temperature affects the metabolism of the plant and CO2 affects the photosynthesis of the plant, that the same goes with, you know, a clone room and a, and a bedroom and a flower room or whatever, if that was cannabis, that they're not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. They, they work together in the end. Yeah. yeah. And working with the plants is fun. Like a, a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for saying what I've <laughs> What I've seen is in some of the big companies, you know, people want to get into like an ag startup because it sounds like it's going to be fulfilling. You know, I'm going to have meaning to my work and maybe they're in marketing or in finance or something. And they've, they're there at the farm working there for a year or two. Maybe they've stepped in the farm once, you know, or like they really have no direct connection to the actual thing that brought them in there. Plants, plants are awesome. So I really think even as you get to a scale, I think it's so important that, you know, at least there's some connection of upper management to working on the farm. I almost think of like undercover boss, 
of like that being a mandatory thing that all upper management is doing just because it's, you know, to be tied in, you know, not just to know what employees are doing, but to get them reconnected to why they're doing ag, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's fun. It's really cool to work with plants. I think something else you said was interesting about monoculture. And, you know, there's sort of this backlash of, of monoculture in our fields, right? And how it's affecting pollinators, how it's affecting, I don't know, genetics, <laughs> right? And, and that whole thing. And so it's interesting that we're re- recreating something that we have disdain for outside and we're recreating it inside. I think there's definitely a spot for monoculture. I mean, there's, there's a spot for it. Yeah. But when you're doing monoculture for indoor ag, you're pretty much are saying, okay, I want to compete against the commodity market. I'm going to grow lettuce. My competition for lettuce is the field. They're doing monocropping in the field and they're going to grow it for a couple cents per pound, you know, maybe less than a dollar per pound. So I'm going to do commodity crop lettuce indoors where my production cost is way higher of, you know, maybe I'm going to get to $8 a pound at best. Why go monoculture? Like you, you already know you've lost, you know, in that price battle. Now you can do pesticide free, you can do all these other things, but um, it just seems like the more you go monoculture and scale, you really are just competing with commodities and eventually indoor ag, the prices will get there of like price production and with the automation, LEDs cost, you know, that's the, the curve will get us there of the cost. But right now, it is a more expensive way of producing. So I think there needs to be, you know, offer something really unique. You know, you, you really have to approach the business slightly different than thinking I'm just replacing the field and doing it indoors. I mean, what is the value proposition from your perspective of controlled environment agriculture, of growing lettuce? in in a warehouse as opposed to the field like i mean you said eventually the the cost of things are going to come down enough that then you can compete with the field market but is that the goal what i think is the biggest strength of indoor ag right now when when i say indoor ag i'm talking about sole source or supplemental lighting or you know all artificial all led um, not greenhouse I, i think the biggest strength of that is being able to go into urban locations where it would be nearly impossible to put a greenhouse or other type of farm. Um, and you can really bring agriculture into a city um, and build those connections of farmer to customer. So like, like I had in Florida where, you know, I'm going to the farmer's market and, and doing that interaction, but even further where you bring a customer and they're doing a you pick in an indoor farm, you know, they're really visiting the farm. And I think that's really the, the huge part of it can allow people who have no connection with agriculture, no connection with, you know, the way their food is produced and actually go visit a farm conveniently, meet a real farmer, you know, and actually build that connection, which then could maybe lead to more connections of them going to other farms. But if I, I, play, I, if I can play devil's advocate. Oh, hit me with it. Hit me with it. I mean, these bigger companies, right? Bigger vertical farm, plant factory style companies, they're not letting people in to UPIC. They're not advocating for, or at least not directly ag education, right? Or food education. Yeah, maybe they have a display or something in the supermarket 
but they're not i mean there's no you where where can no. i do you pick the factories <laughs> yeah those are factories yeah yeah so I, I, that, that value proposition i mean it doesn't exist until area two farms yes <laughs> so are people gonna be are you gonna welcome people into area two farms yeah none of this crazy secrecy farm stuff this is your local community farm this is the neighborhood farm yeah i think that's where it makes sense that is so awesome thank you you know, while we're on this topic, I usually save this question for later, but I mean, and I feel like I already know what your answer is, but do you think that controlled environment agriculture is more competitive or collaborative? Both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to the growers, it's collaborative. You know, so many of the head growers of all these big mm-hmm. like vc ag tech companies they're all friends like i know most of these guys we chat we're totally okay sharing you know what we're doing and but we definitely wouldn't want to tell the rest of the company that we you know we're all pals i think there's definitely like a grower network where people are very more open um, and more collaborative but on the surface it does not look like that. It is very competitive. And until you start to integrate into some of the grower networks, it just looks like, you know, really tall walls around every company. Um, which, I, yeah, as I said earlier, I don't think there's that much secret sauce that they're protecting. Um, you know, they're almost all working with the same the suppliers. They're all working with, you know, a lot of this hydroponic tech is decades old. Right. Yeah. So, is the competition? Do you think sort of a manufactured competition among like the the VCs and the investors and the people who aren't sort of on the ground, on the ground in the greenhouse, uh, whatever, who are doing the the work um, that that they don't necessarily realize that it should or could be collaborative or is? I mean, I think that business model. Oh, the VC business model depends on it not being collaborative. You know, they want to be first. They want to win. Yeah, they want to be first. They want to, but any grower, like most of these plant people are usually fairly quiet. You know, most plant people are sort of introverts until you start talking plants with them, until you like do a garden tour or anything. And that's when, like, it's just like you see a different side of, of people. That's like what you get when growers start talking to other growers and they just start talking about the way a plant's reacting or different varieties or, you know, different products they're trying. It's all open because who else do they talk to? They just talk to plants, you know, it's, <laughs> kind of, it's really, it's so much fun to like go to these conferences and talk to other growers and actually start seeing what's going on. It's like, it's a different world. So you had mentioned, you know, some of the strengths of, controlled environment agriculture plant wise are there specific benefits of growing indoors or in a greenhouse compared to a field and even if you compared indoor you know like what you're doing with area two farms versus your extensive experience in a greenhouse like what are the challenges there what are the pros and cons that was a lot on that question questions yeah (laughs) 
The first, um, the first question was just, you know, the benefits of growing a plant indoors in a controlled yeah. environment versus out in a field. Yeah. The benefits are definitely regional. You know, there, there's solid models where it, it works well when you're in some of these cold climates, you know, and you have cheap energy. Mm-hmm. There's some of these Canadian indoor farms that have pretty solid models where they're getting cheap energy. There's no local produce available. And, and those ones definitely are pretty solid. Uh, doing one next to Salinas or next to Yuma is a little bit uh, of a little bit of a crazier a proposition. <laughs> yeah. And then what about for young, I mean, you, you grew in a green tomatoes and lettuce in a greenhouse in Florida. That's a pretty scary climate to, to try to it's grow. Horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. Florida and Texas are some of the toughest environments to do a greenhouse. Oh my gosh. Um, lots of sun yeah you don't even want it at that point you have like three levels of shade cloth up just to get away from the sun there's probably a way that indoor ag can make sense even in some of these tropical climates but i don't really i've not seen a good model i think it really works well in conjunction with like greenhouse or a field where it's the young plant production yeah, like Ricardo Hernandez, Dr. Ricardo Hernandez, he has that young plant production uh, company where yeah. he does grafted tomatoes and young seedlings. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense indoors. You know, tissue culture in conjunction with operations like that, where you can just have really consistent, consistent young plant production that then feeds a greenhouse. I think that makes a lot of sense. So for, for some crops, like I think about maybe tomatoes or peppers or cucumbers, you know, traditional greenhouse crops. I remember when I was at the U of A, right, that we would plant the tomatoes in, in August or September um, as little seedlings, right? And then we'd grow them through the entire year. Where did those seedlings come from? Yeah, there's, uh, I think there's a few companies that do all the grafted pepper and tomato production that like feed most of these tomato greenhouses. But yeah, it's similar to the way the Dutch do leafy greens where all the, like the leafy greens greenhouses, they actually have uh, young plant propagation companies that will do all their lettuce seedlings and then distribute it to greenhouses for grow out. Um, a lettuce so, seedling that grow like a plant that grows for like a couple of months. They like yeah, they'll do young plant production. For the- yeah, and they'll sell to multiple grow out facilities. Wow. So sort of like like poinsettias or anything, you know, like yeah. nursery. Yeah, that's definitely collaborative world over there where. Yes, it is. You know, so many people using the same young plants. And, and let me just tell you why I I asked you that question. You know. It feels like a lot of growers try to do everything all in the same building, right? On the same site, whether you're a lettuce grower and you're seeding and germinating and, and, and cultivating and packaging and et cetera, or storing even cannabis, right? I mean, these poor cannabis growers have mother plants and clones and veg and, and flour and dry and cure and uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, when I think back to my original horticulture days, we weren't growing the, the, the tomato from seed. Somebody else started it with seed. Somebody else might have grown it in a nursery to a seedling size. And then we grew the tomatoes. 
So is there a model for that within indoor farming and cannabis that eventually we could get to that could improve, I don't know, labor or efficiency or something? I wish, but the, the IPM is like just so different between greenhouse and indoor. So the, the integrated pest management and indoor, the threshold just so high where you know, if they have to clean out their whole room because they're pesticide free or anything like that, when they start getting hit by something, um, it's just too much of a risk to outsource that young plant production. Where in a greenhouse, you know, everyone's pretty realistic of what's going on. You know, they, they all have the same access to the same pest management techniques. They can deal with it. I was on a call not too long ago and with a, a bunch of indoor ag folks and they were all talking about this exact topic. And it pretty much all came down to can any of these people guarantee that these seedlings are pest-free and disease-free? And then who knows, signing contracts to be liable for, you know, something yeah. like... And, it's an, and it is an issue in the cannabis industry where you have these nurseries um, and producing clones and then you bring them in or, or even not even that, like maybe you meet someone right at a cannabis comp, cup who has a great genetics and then you bring them in and you hope that they have a quarantine space, right, for those plants to make sure that they aren't going to, I don't know, uh, distribute some virus or, or mold to the rest of their farm. Um, and so you're starting to see more like tissue culture and more other yeah. ways to propagate these plants in, in alternative, cleaner ways. Yep. Just no viable tissue culture for lettuce right now. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, speaking of that, though, I mean, how's the breeding going with indoor horticultural plants? Are we there yet? Are we going to keep growing, you know, Johnny's greenhouse heirloom, I don't know, lettuce plants? <laughs> I wish. I, I, when I think about genetics for indoors, I always think about sort of the tomato genetic revolution in greenhouses where it was people growing greenhouses for so many decades. And then once they actually bred tomatoes that could tolerate that greenhouse climate with high humidity, that's really when things changed. And, you know, the greenhouse industry blew up when the genetics caught up to the environment they were growing in. And indoor, you know, none of the seed producers have been able to justify that the markets at that point to breed exclusively for indoor. Really? Um, you know, I know there's the there's that one with uh, Tomasic uh, in Singapore unfold. Okay. Um, you know, I think they might be doing some actual breeding just for indoor, but like Reichswan, Enza Zaden, all these leafy green breeders, all they're doing is screening their other genetics to see what works well indoors. They're not actually breeding for indoors. They're not doing selections under, you know, indoor conditions to then you know create a line that was tolerating those indoor conditions. It's all just screening existing varieties. Interesting. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a difficult to, the market has to be a fairly large to, you know, really justify that, that breeding. But who knows, there probably are some people doing it. As I've said, you know, the industry is secretive, so there's probably some folks that are doing it. But, you know, as of like a couple of years ago when I was visiting the Netherlands and, you know, going to these breeders, it was all just screening existing varieties. It's also difficult because the conditions in these indoor farms are just so different from company to company where all the greenhouses, okay, they all you know, maybe have 
800 micromoles to 1500 micromoles. Uh, you know, their, their conditions are all fairly similar, high humidity, high light, but indoors, leafy green indoors, you can see such a wide range. Some folks are going to 150, uh, you know, PPFD and they are catering spectrum to high blue to deal with low light plant physiology like reactions. So yeah, that'll get a whole complex thing, but they balance spectrum with really low light intensity where other farms are going like white light and going really high intensity. They're doing 400 micromole up to 600 micromole. So a breeder trying to say, okay, the indoor lettuce market is this. So I'm breeding for this is like, there is no this. That is a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that you think indoor is being really uniform and maybe consistent, but I guess from farm to farm, from grower to grower, from technology to technology and region to region, it could be really different. And, yeah, and some mean, of those decisions might even like be based on how much power you have to your facility. And so are you running a high light intensity or a low light intensity? Yeah. Or how much did you invest in all your equipment? Like you start getting into this hole of like, oh, my harvester is so expensive. My cedar is so expensive. I need to have them operating at full speed all the time. So it doesn't matter how much my light costs, because if I can produce more, I get to take better use of my equipment. And you get into this weird spot where like the, the operation costs, it doesn't matter what it is because more production helps offset all these other costs. Where if you do a really cheap CapEx, then you can actually do a lower OpEx and it still makes sense. There's, there's, it's just a really wide range of approaches to indoor leafy greens. Interesting. Could you expand on what you were starting to say about light? And so yeah. we're saying, yeah, it's like so cool. light versus the white light, you know, I know that there's a lot of research going on right now in terms of light spectrums and intensities for different types of, of lettuce plants and, and leafy greens. Um, I mean, based on uh, your knowledge of sort of the current state of the technology and art of growing, what, what are you seeing? So um, yeah, this is one of my favorite, favorite topics because I think this is really where some of like the plant hacking that people will say like has actually worked. So with some specific crops like lettuce and some of the brassicas, you can do really low light levels like 150 as long as you do really high percent blue. So blue light, um, when plants receive blue light, it's their sort of, that's the way they measure light intensity. So in full sun, even if it's a low percent blue, the total amount of blue they're getting is triggering them to do a response like they're in high light. If you're under really low light conditions, but you do a high percentage of blue, plants still have that same reaction as if they're under high intensity light. Um, and what that means from a plant physiology is they're being short, they're doing thick leaves, they're being, you know, they're more compact. They're focusing more on root growth to get more water because they're think, they think they're in a high light environment that's stressful. So they need small, thick leaves that are really crunchy. Um, pretty much the same way that a plant grows under low light with high blue. It's about the same that it would look like under a broad spectrum, but really high light levels. Because in both situations, it's really that blue light that's triggering the physiological response uh, primarily, um, which is that, that high light response. 
Now there's a lot of other factors and I'm sure if a lighting scientist is listening, he's like, well, what about far red or he or she or whatever they're, they're yeah, saying, yeah, what about yeah. far red? What about, this about this? What, what about amber light? <laughs> yeah. And okay. There's, there's a wide range, but the blue trigger is huge when it comes specifically to lettuce and some of the brassicas where you can get what looks like a high, in, uh, like a really high light intensity crop um, growth under really low light with its high blue. The issue is it also creates a really stressful environment that not many varieties like. So you really, you've dialed yourself into a monoculture. Mm-hmm. You really, like if you try to do arugula, if you try to do spinach, a lot of those are going to freak out under high blue. Okay. Um, it really only works well with a small range, like leafy greens, lettuce and, and brassicas. But, you know, if that's your focus, you've just, you can do it super cheap. You know, with that little light, your HVAC is cheaper. Everything's cheaper, um, but you're still getting a really high quality product with a good thick leaf that has a good shelf life. Um, but if you want to grow a wide range of crops, you know, a lot of folks are going towards the white LEDs, which is more gentle on the crop. Like you can, it's not as stressful. It's more like natural sunlight. So you can grow a really wide range of crops. You can grow a arugula and spinach and some of these traditionally more difficult to grow crops, but you have to pay for more fixtures. You have to pay you know, higher utility costs because you're using more light. And then there's some other parts to this where when you go to white, usually the LEDs are commodity LEDs um, in white. So the fixtures are actually cheaper usually with broad spectrum white LED compared to purple and red, which are specialty LEDs, which have to be sourced differently in batch sizes. And Is that why so LED the, prices yeah. are dropping because they're going to more of a commodity LED? LED? Yeah, that's what uh, Fluence did. So Fluence pretty much, when everyone else was doing these, especially red-blue diodes, they went to white commodity diodes and just dropped the price on the fixtures because they were using, yeah, commodity white diodes is where everyone else had been using, you know, diodes that had been sp- selected for a specific nanometer to hit, you know, these yeah. uh, chlorophyll A and B, like max absorption spectrum. You know, a lot of growers were like, okay, I'll, you know, this cheap fixture, maybe my, you know, a lot, I don't think a lot of them knew that their operational costs and like light use efficiency was going to be a little bit higher. But for a lot of people, lower CapEx and higher OpEx works. So cheap fixtures, but having to pay a little bit more for electricity, I'm fine with that because when I'm actually operating, I'm actually making money, you know? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we could go down so many rabbit holes on this specific conversation. I'm just, you know, one of the arguments against switching to LEDs, right, by growers um, to a more efficient lamp um, or efficient lighting source is that they're so expensive. Um, And so if we're going to these more commodity LEDs to bring down the price so that it is, you know, the adoption of that new technology, of that more efficient technology is higher. Does that necessarily mean that, what is the question I want to ask here? Um, I I would still think a commodity white LED is more efficient than an HBS or metal halide. Yeah. So even that step is good. But if, if you are choosing red and blue or these specific spectrums of, of white, would they be even that much more efficient and could they be more productive as well? But there's just still the CapEx would be higher. If you're creating like a finely tuned plant factory, I think 
red and blue makes sense if you're really dialing it in for a specific crop and you're not trying to do a wide range, you're not trying to uh, you know roll out new skews all the time. You know, you know, you do this lettuce and you can really get it the most efficient and yeah, drop the cost as much as possible. You <laughs> don't see anything wrong with choosing a commodity LED diode over a red and blue tune diode for most of the crops that we're growing. If, I think if it's it fun. gets people to adopt a more, especially if it gets people to adopt a more efficient technology, it's still productive um, than something else like HPS or metal halide or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's still a good step. And I think it's the right step for a lot of farms that are doing like, you know, these small farms that are doing a really like an area two farm where you're doing a, uh, 200 some varieties that we might be growing um and we need something that's just really flexible so we can do a tomato a pepper a strawberry carrot a radish you know you can't really dial in on just the specific light recipe for one crop because then you're gonna have a different fixture for every different crop and that's just craziness so you, you have to pick something more generalist so now that's lighting but ha- but aren't you being sort of a generalist in terms of say co2 or temperature or vpd with all those different crops or, or how yeah. can you dial it in <laughs> yeah plants grow outside plants are so like the prescriptions given for plants that are mostly coming from academia are just too intense to really be taken seriously in the real world applications which i mean they're they're, yeah they're they're good guides but they shouldn't be thought of as the sort of boundaries Mm. um and i think there's been some good ones like there was i forget that graphic on basil where they showed basil growing at an ec of 0.5 up to three like in increments of 0.5 and it looked exactly the same from 0.5 up to three you know the I've been taking nutrient water tests of all these hydroponic facilities for I don't know, like 10 years now. And I have all these sheets collected and I've been, you know, every time there's a really good crop, I'll, I'll write, you know, I'll jot down, I'll send out the water test and start creating this sort of thresholds. And you look at what the prescribed parts per million for all these different, you know, specific elements, the essential nutrients and what in real world, what's created amazing conditions is like, you know, it blows that spectrum out of the water. It doesn't even make sense. So the same goes with, uh, you know, climate, so many things you can, you can really still grow a fairly well, you know, good plant, even outside of these tight sort of recommended thresholds. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is not just how to grow the most, you know, most optimal crop, but how to grow it most cost efficiently. Yeah. I frequently make the argument that you know, going, going indoors, right. And we're trying to create the same conditions every single day, right. Day in and day out. Um, and maybe it changes based on the growth pattern of your plant or something, but you know, for the most part, right. You're all, it's 75 degrees and 65% humidity, right. Every day, right. Like, let's just assume that, but you're in a greenhouse and it could be 80 degrees, it could be 65 degrees, it could be 90 degrees one day because the pump on the cooling pad didn't work. And your plants survive, and maybe they actually thrive in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Of you know, that sort of idea of growing uh, something 
in a very consistent environment all the time versus a variable environment? Are there are there advantages think, to growing in a more variable environment, do you think? I think the big advantage is how much experience does your grower need to have? Yeah. So, I mean, a greenhouse grower versus an indoor grower is just very different. When I'm training up a new grower and you can get an indoor grower, you know, fairly comfortable within three months because they've seen a full crop rotation. They understand what's coming and they now know a greenhouse grower, they need to be with you for a full year or two so they can see every different seasonal variation. How did you switch varieties? How did you switch all the climate management by season? Um, it's a lot more experience required. You know, it totally makes sense why, you know, a greenhouse head grower would need five to 10 years of experience because they need to see how all, you know, how to really work around these seasons. But an indoor grower, two years, you've seen a lot of crop rotations. You've seen, you know, if you're in a stable environment, you know, or at least relatively stable, you, you should be fairly predictable. And I think, you know, when you talk about indoor ag, I think that is one of the biggest strengths. There's so many people that want to get into this. And when you look at all the job postings, they all are like, hey, grower, minimum five to 10 years experience. And there's just so few people who have that, but they're still so eager to want to get into it. And I think that's where indoor farming can you know, do fairly well is bringing in new farmers, getting them really excited, um, and they can get up to speed fairly quickly. I like that a lot. Yeah, you know, when uh, we've worked with cannabis clients who are going from indoor to greenhouse and they're like, oh, you know, our indoor grower has like five years of experience and they're going to be our greenhouse grower. And I'm like, are you sure you want that? Like I would have been, I'd be more comfortable if you took a greenhouse or a grower who is growing greenhouse tomatoes or even poinsettias and brought them in a green a cannabis greenhouse than your indoor guy becoming your greenhouse guy the tools a greenhouse grower needs to like build up like in their sort of artillery is yeah. all about how do i deal with what i can't control of like you know i only can control nutrients okay let me figure out how do i adjust the ratio of nitrate to ammonium um, um ammoniacal nitrogen to deal with low light or high light you know, we're an indoor, they pretty much have a set and you, you just pick what works well in that indoor setting. Much more formulaic. Yeah. A greenhouse grower has to really have a lot, like a, a lot of different levers that they know how to pull to deal with a climate that they really can't control that tightly. You get a more creative grower for sure, but inexperienced, uh, you'll have a lot of failures. Starting your own greenhouse and with no greenhouse experience is a terrifying thought to me. Like, I'm so glad that I got to fail on other people's dime because <laughs> I killed so many plants. Oh my gosh, killed so many plants. Like, it's just, I don't know how else you can really learn how to do it well without killing a lot of plants. Give us, give us, um, I don't know, do you have a story of killing plants that you can share? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> One that hurt real bad was... At that first farm after college, um, so it was at about two 10,000 square foot greenhouses full of NFT lettuce and it's organic production and we are seeing some root rot, like uh, it looks like pythium. So we're going to use a um, peroxide in the water to sort of help knock it back. So 
the the owner tells me, okay, add two ounces, and I, I throw it into the tank. And I, or no, he said add eight ounces. He told me eight ounces. I add it to the tank. I go do a walk through the greenhouse in like two hours, and everything is dead. Like forty thousand lettuce plants are dead, of completely wow. fried. The roots are gone. In two uh, hours. This is in Florida heat where it's like 95 degrees out. So there was, they were like thirsty plants where they were just sucking up the water. And then in that climate, when they get hit by such high peroxide, just all the root hair is gone, just fried. Then I call the boss and he's like, no, I said two ounces, not eight ounces. And like, he freaked out on me. Like, I think he threatened to sue me or some shit crap. Oh, I was like, no. this is ridiculous, dude. You told me two ounces. <laughs> it, it, we, it ended up going okay eventually but um no it was it was a lot of dead plants it was it was horrific like that what, was what definitely did, one what of those... did that dead plant look like like did they just all wilt did they turn yeah, just wilt. yeah okay just instant wilt um and no bounce they don't back. have any roots to suck water up anymore yeah yeah, yeah those things are like a straw just sucking up water in that kind of heat in florida that like as soon as those root hairs are gone they can't tolerate it maybe if you give it at night it'd have enough time to like be okay but yeah, in the middle of the day, uh, I destroyed it. Yeah, that was definitely one of those, one of several drives home where I was crying. Oh. It was like a good 45 minute hour long drive from the farm to home, where it's like, just let it out. But yeah, that's like the most powerful lessons. Like those are the types of things that make you double check every single time you add something to a tank. Like why so many growers have like hardcore OCD is probably a little bit of PTSD. Of, like interesting i want to make sure of that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's really it's powerful lessons wow you know of all the different plants that you've grown which is your favorite which is your least favorite mm, that is i mean that's sort of like a cruel question it's like asking your favorite child kind of thing <laughs> like who, who's your favorite kid like I feel like that's sort of like messed up for me to even answer someone's feelings in the background <laughs> yeah look at, look at all these babies right here that's my like, wall of seeds like <laughs> oh, I mean I really like a good really sweet sun gold tomato I also like a green zebra tomato that has like more of the savory flavor so some of growing tomatoes like along the spectrum of like sweet to super savory is always fun and people get so excited by tomatoes like unlike people don't get too excited about like a butterhead lettuce but why do people get more excited about tomatoes because people instantly know when they've had a good one or just like a, a meh one that's true lettuce you can just drown with dressing anyway right yeah but like everyone can tell when they've had a good tomato or not you know and with cannabis i definitely grew a lot of cannabis yeah connoisseurs know when they've had something good or not right and like i was definitely very picky but most people, it could have been mids from, you know, anywhere, like compressed into a brick. And they're like, oh, yeah, this tastes like weed still. <laughs> and like, it wasn't as discerning of a customer. But I mean, there's definitely very discerning customers out there in cannabis. But um, I think every single person knows when they've eaten a tomato and it's good. That was, I mean, for me, that was one of the biggest joys when I was doing my PhD research was, you know, having all these tomatoes that I got to give away to family and friends. And the, it was so fun to get that reaction 
that this is the best tomato that I've had since, you know, my grandmother's garden when I was a kid type of reaction. Like that feels so satisfying. Yeah. The other one that uh, really does that one well is like an alpine strawberry. So the the wild strawberries where they're, I don't know, like no bigger than like a tip of your pinky. They taste like artificial strawberry flavor almost. So it's like so intense strawberry where it tastes fake. But because it's a real strawberry, it, it tastes like your mind's not saying, oh, I just ate some artificial candy. It's like holy cow, how is there an actual wild plant that tastes like this? But the, the big issue with them is when you pick them, they have maybe like a 10 minute shelf life before they just turn to mush. <laughs> and when they're ripe, they're really, they have like the consistency of Play-Doh where like you pick them and when you pick them, your fingers are just squished through them. So wow. it's like, no idea how you'd ever commercialize it unless it was a you pick farm. You pick yeah. and eat, you pick and eat. <laughs> exactly. Alpine strawberry is amazing. Huh. Have those been grown in a greenhouse and control environment ag yet? Probably not that not. I know of. Not yeah. that I know of. <laughs> not yet. Um, not yet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, what's your least favorite plant to grow? Arugula. Really? Why? Okay, I love arugula. Oh, like, we love arugula too. I will eat salads of pure, just straight arugula. And I really love wild arugula, like the super serrated leaves. But the issue is in a hydroponic situation, you really can't do the wild arugula too well. So you end up doing salad arugula, which is like aruca something, something instead of the diplotera. There's two big families. Um, so everyone, when they love arugula, they love wild arugula with the super serrated leaves where all the indoor farms and hydroponic folks are growing salad arugula. Um, and it still has a similar flavor, but it just doesn't look as cool. But either way, no matter what arugula you're growing, it's very difficult. Arugula doesn't really like having wet feet. Um, it really likes super dry environments. And it is just the most finicky, leafy green, usually in the bunch. So it's like my indicator of like, if something's wrong in the system, the arugula is usually going to show it first. Interesting. Uh, oh, also cilantro. I love eating cilantro, but it's another one of those that can be a little finicky, celery. Oh, I like growing mimosa pudicas. Touch what me not. Uh, the touch me not plant. You know that one that folds up the sensitive plant where it folds its leaves up when you touch yeah. it? Not edible or anything. Okay. But it's just a cool plant because you get to like touch it cool and plant. it moves. Yeah. I mean. So that, that may be one of your favorites, but not necessarily edible <laughs> no not necessarily edible. i said we grow a lot of things in greenhouses that aren't edible right i i don't know that anybody eats poinsettias or i don't know roses i guess you could no, eat. actually roses are really good yeah you just want to wash them off first right the rose hips oh man yeah. and they have uh, a there's a there's a rose variety that does a seedless rose hip yeah really cool and then you just get to like eat it like little berries yeah, those are Interesting. So what is the, I mean, we haven't talked at all about your, your DIY books, but I'm just kind of curious for our listeners who might want to set up a hydroponic system at home, or maybe they, they have one at home. What is the biggest difference of, of doing a setting up a hydroponic system at home versus, you know, commercially at a greenhouse or something? Consistency is, is probably the main one. You know, at home, you can just grow whatever you want. If it fails, it's okay. 
you know, it's really not hard to grow a plant, uh, but growing a perfect plant every time, you know, at an affordable price is what makes commercial farming a business. Like that's where the challenge comes is doing it right every time. At home, like if you just want to grow a plant, try 20 different varieties and probably two of them at least will work. And hey, now you've got that plants. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll, maybe it's an edible one if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the fun parts about growing at home is you get to do systems that aren't based on just what a plant wants. It's really based on like what you like, like aesthetically pleasing. So if you want to make plants spin around on a Ferris wheel or do something else that's purely what you like and not about whatever the plants want, you do that. Because this is my farm in my house. I do what I want. I do what I want. <laughs> so tell me, how, how does efficiency play into indoor agriculture? When you think about efficiency, what metrics do you think of? Uh, what technologies do you think of? Yeah, what what... I guess, farm practices do you think of? I think about waste a lot when it comes to, to efficiency. In an indoor farm, with the margins so low, you really can't, there's not much tolerance for waste. It's sort of shocking as an indoor farmer when you go to like the fields of Yuma or Salinas and you see a field after a lettuce harvest and it still looks like there's lettuce to be harvested. It doesn't even look like it's been harvested yet because there's mountains of lettuce leaves all over the field and you know they plow that all back in and it's nutrients that get cycled again but the the margins you know indoors you want every single leaf you want to maximize the edible you know harvestable portion of the plant then you don't want any shrinkage on the way out of like you know you really want perfect shelf life you want perfect conditions all the way because you know with the amount of you know resources that you've put into this you, you really don't have much margin for loss. So yeah, I think that one's pretty cool, the efficiency. Yeah, um, I don't think a lot of people realize that the head of, say, romaine lettuce that they get at the grocery store, that that's like, I don't know, a quarter, 50%. A third of the plant. Yeah, <laughs> that actually grew out in the field and that they're chopping off those outer leaves out in the field and leaving them behind. And then if it, even if it's romaine, they might even take another section of outer leaves and put them in a Caesar salad kit and then sell you the hearts of the romaine. It's an interesting industry. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Like none of that, you know, none of that flies in a greenhouse or indoor, you know, everything produced needs to be sellable like a high percentage but yeah when you go to a field it's a totally different world the amount of lost and stuff that's filtered out and just tossed and left in the field is it's it's shocking how important do you think automation is to efficiency will there ever be an ai robot that can replace that five or ten years of experience of a greenhouse grower it seems like they're getting close like i know they have those odd uh, autonomous greenhouse grower competitions. Mm-hmm. I think Wageningen does that one. It seems like they're getting close, but you know, I, I could imagine a world where there's a computer that knows all those tricks that a grower has been doing to deal with a climate, you know, a less than ideal climate and how to adjust the other inputs that are controllable for, you know, a high humidity spike or a low light spike or something like that. 
I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen a, a farm operate that didn't need a grower. I think indoors, the potential is definitely higher to do that because you just don't have as many factors. But for me, the automation where I think it's best is in making it a better environment for workers where they aren't doing as much like backbreaking stuff. Like that first year out of college when I was doing that picking tomatoes, there is no way I could imagine a career like that when I'm in my 40s or 50s without just my body being destroyed. You know, it's not like a, a job that you can do for a long time. But if we can start adding some of this automation where this is a career that's, you know, doesn't destroy your body, I think it definitely helps with the longevity of it, of making it a, a real thing. I mean, I know that was part of my motivation to start like writing books and to start doing those things. It's like my body's going to give out if I keep doing, you know, this really intense work um, my whole life. I need to start figuring out a way to figure out some income, you know, that's not just you know, doing the manual work. I think with automation, it's definitely changing that where so many of these labor intensive parts can be automated where it can be a nice working environment um, without being too strenuous. I think that makes sense. And I guess there's a lot of indoor farmer, indoor farming companies that are automating or trying to automate um, a lot of the sort of back breaking processes of transplanting um, trays and, and moving the plants around from point A to point B and C and, and beyond uh, with, with less labor input or, or at least less manual labor that it's more of a technical job than a, a laborious job, I guess. Do you, you know, and you come from a, a spirit of, of science and, and education, ag education, um, you know, technical um, education. The Why spirit do you spirit think- of science? I like that one. <laughs> Coined, right? Sorry, okay. <laughs> but yes. No, I'm just curious. Why do you? Why is education so important in this industry? And and yeah, let's start there. Yeah, I think it's important for both the doer and the receiver. You you could be doing something awesome like growing plants every day, and you grow numb to it um, until like you give that really good tasting tomato to someone, and their reaction is what makes you excited again about what you're doing. Um, you know, so I think the sharing is huge for really enjoying what you may do every day. Um, and then I think it's also important because there might be someone out there who doesn't know a path different than, you know, what they're seeing all the time. My whole family is in medicine or, um, engineers or lawyers and, um, you know, just not knowing that there's other possibilities that can be really fulfilling, um, you know, what farming can look like. They may have something in their mind where I, I don't want to be on a tractor every day, um, but there's a different way where I can live in the middle of the city and go to work and, you know, really get that satisfaction of growing these plants and selling something like doing something physical that you give to someone. Um, you know, when I was saying like what got me into horticulture of like the plant physiology, I think the other thing big driver was I wanted to do something that felt very like real. It felt like 
I wanted to do a career that was just like very human, like growing food. This is something humans need. This is a very like not society made up position where it's not like a lawyer where like, I don't know. Yeah, there's importance for lawyers, but society could function without it, you know, but like farmer, this is like I'm growing something and this is food. This is something that's significant. And I think that is also what is driving a lot of people into getting into agriculture is they want to do something that feels more meaningful and more real and like substantial, um, which is why I, yeah, yeah. So many of the people that were like coming to the internship at the grow house, they may have been doing finance or doing something else. And they're like, I'm, I'm tired of this. I don't feel like this is meaningful. And I start growing plants. You think yeah. it's important for consumers to have a direct relationship or connection to farmers and, and the, the, the food that's produced for them? I don't think it's critical, but I think it definitely makes the experience of like cooking and eating that food just way more meaningful. You know, you add a story to anything, it just like it feels way better. It could be the exact same head of lettuce, but if you know that head of lettuce is, you know, an heirloom variety that was passed along for generations and smuggled across borders in someone's like coveralls and, you know, like, or it was like, this seed was found in a pyramid and we brought it back after a thousand years of never being grown. Like, I want to eat that lettuce. Oh my gosh, I want to eat that lettuce. It may be the exact same lettuce I just ate. You know, there's so much that a story can do to add to food and knowing your farmer, all that kind of stuff can just make life feel more meaningful hmm. than just input goes in. Now I function, you know, yeah. we like stories. We like stories and you know food and sustenance doesn't just have to be sustenance it can be something that is more than that right it can be gatherings and family and feast and you know we're coming up here with thanksgiving and sharing food with each other um and you know starting with you know enjoying the bounty of the fall harvest yeah, uh, it's not just we all needed sustenance on this day in November. So we are here. <laughs> I mean, we do if we're going to go into hibernation and don't need to eat for the next four months. But this is true. <laughs> not an indoor farmer. No hibernation. <laughs> That's right. We have access yeah. to fresh food all the time. <laughs> How do you predict the industry is going to evolve over the next five to 10 years? I mean, what gives you do you? you must have hope that the industry is going in the right direction to start area two farms. Um, and you want to be part of that. Yeah. What do you see happening over in the near future? I see uh, there being some changes on scale. I think there'll be probably a lot of mergers on the large scale of like a lot of these big farms that are probably thinking their competition will probably start merging as it already been seen mm. um, as they start to realize, you know, they're, they're in the same game. Once you've gone big, you just have to go bigger. And then on the other side, I think you'll see the boutique farms and more of those popping up and hopefully more of those popping up with a model that actually works. You know, the, the container farms was a huge surge for a while and 
so many people got into that only to realize that like the economics is pretty difficult in a container. You only can grow maybe like 500 heads of lettuce a week, which translates to maybe like 50 cents profit per head, you know, and someone thinks they're getting a farm container farm and they're going to now be a farmer. And like, there was a lot of failure, but I think there'll start to be some models of small farms that actually work and are profitable. And you know, that's really what I hope to sort of be part of um, and, and show that that side works as well. What makes a small farm profitable? It's not having to, to lose your margins through multiple people touching that product. Mm-hmm. So a, a greenhouse farmer selling butterhead lettuce, um, let's say they sell it for uh, you know, the cost of production, is maybe let's you know let's say they're doing pretty well on a butterhead with packaging and stuff their cost of production is like a dollar ten let's say then they sell it wholesale for a dollar fifty and then the grocery store marks it from a dollar fifty to four dollars you know all of that profit is the grocery store there wow it's why do we give so much to the grocery store but why doesn't the lettuce consortium or whatever you want to call it group why don't they just all get together and say we're going to start selling for two dollars and fifty cents i mean is a grocery store still gonna then bump it up another i mean most bump it up double it yeah most grocery store almost always double everything they buy so if you know a farmer can get that double direct you know even if they're growing that head of lettuce for two dollars Selling for $4, the customer gets it for the same price directly from the farmer with a story and the farmer is actually making more money. So that's the farmer's market sort of model, right? Why don't we have more vertically integrated indoor farms and greenhouses? The farmer's market is difficult because it's just so volatile and it's not really a year round thing. Usually if you have a rainy day, you've pretty much your whole crop is gone which is the grocery stores are a stable place to push your product if you have a year-round production. And then the reason why more vertical farms aren't vertically integrated with distribution is because they've reached a scale at which they have to go to where people, to these traditional outlets of grocery stores. You know, the only place who can handle that much produce that they're growing is a grocery store. Um, so they've actually grown themselves into pretty much being dependent on that distribution. And that's I mean, the story of App Harvest right now. So App Harvest, you know, the part of their story was we're growing a premium product and we're going to sort of change the pricing model for tomatoes. But they actually don't distribute their own tomatoes. They depend on Mastronardi. And Mastronardi is really who dictates the price. You know, they have some contracts where they can lock in some prices, but still... You know, they're not doing the distribution themselves. They don't really have that end consumer. So, you know, you build, you put all this capital into this huge business and that final step, you really don't have control of, like you can get squeezed. Like, unless you control the, you know, that final step, you can get squeezed by distributors. That's what happens to farmers. I mean, all the garden stores like Walmart and Lowe's and Home Depot, all those folks, Oh my gosh, they squeeze all those people, all those people selling like the little bedding plants and everything. You know, they just go to every different person. What farmer will undercut another farmer? And farmers all undercut each other. I mean, it's it's brutal. Isn't that kind of like orchids, right? Like, isn't there like an orchid monopoly right now? 
everyone, I mean, everyone just bottoms it out and undercuts each other. I mean, cheap food's great, but it really pushes it towards only the big guy will win at that, at that way. But is that a benefit yeah. that you guys have at area two farms by growing a diversity of crops? Like, could you potentially be vertically integrated in the sense like you could have right like a, a storefront and so yeah that's what we have a variety of of your product that's what we do yeah, yeah. We, have a, we have a we have a it's like a your corner store bodega but it has a farm yeah it's cool yeah it's, you recreated your own farmer's market with a variety of things but that you have yeah. control over because it's not weather dependent or it's not going to rain on us if exactly. we just lost our farmer's market yeah i like this model i mean it kind of follows you know the the cannabis model of being vertically integrated where there are states that require that um and so they have retail stores um, of the product that they produce um themselves and i it seems like there is some benefit to that you get to decide what those prices are. You have control over transportation and distribution. You even have control, you know, potentially over who your customer base is. Um, yeah, I don't know. It seems like there's there's benefits there. Yeah, and you're not just lost on the shelf at a grocery store. Yeah, you know, so many so many of these vertical farms, like so much is about the story of them being pesticide free and locally grown, but then the when the final product ends up in a grocery store next to all these other clamshells, I mean, who's looking for a story there? They're just picking a clamshell off a wall. You know, right. what's the story mean there? But if you go to a farmer, it could be, the clamshell could look like whatever you want, but you're talking to the farmer and now you have a story of like, oh yeah, I just grew this. This is a cool variety. I just tried out, you know, this one's crunchy because we grew it in a slightly colder environment. It has a little bit more blue light. And then that's the, you know, then that person where they go have a dinner party, they're like, oh yeah, this, this salad has a slightly extra crunch, you know, because of a little bit of blue spectrum and you know, not, not to make it too bougie, but like, it's fun. Like, Why I not? love that stuff. I mean, we, we talk about terroirs with wine and we talk about different styles of hops with beer. Like, why can't we do this with lettuce and tomatoes? I love that stuff. I would rather eat like a tiny small salad of like really cool stuff than a mountain of just iceberg. iceberg Although, I don't want to knock iceberg. I love iceberg too. I mean, it's it like crunchy and yeah, yeah. It's crunchy and juicy and like that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> there is a place for iceberg. For iceberg. sure. All right. So last question for you. Last official question for you. Oh, then the unofficials come. Then the okay. unofficials, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you did not get that list of questions for sure. So. Uh, <laughs> After hours with Dr. Greenhouse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Tyler, what do plants crave? I guess when I think about what plants crave, I think about what do people most mess up on, on how to like take care of their plants. And it's usually overwatering. So I'm thinking most plants crave to actually let their roots breathe a bit and not be suffocated. That's oxygen. really, yeah, they, they crave oxygen in their roots for sure. When you go talk to these like OG garden center, like managers and all these people who've like been growing plants for so long, it's almost shocking how dry they let their plants get where the tray is so light. The plant roots are so like, it really dries out and that's 
to let those roots really grow down and to uh, let them breathe a little bit. And then you go to most new growers and they're soaking wet the substrate. It has algae growing on top of the substrate because it's always wet. Yeah, plants, plants crave a little bit of a dry down. You got to let them have that dry down. Interesting. Why do you think people are overwatering? Like there's just too much love, just too much love. I mean, when you look at, you know, what, what can you do to take care of a plant? Oh, I can give it water. I can give it fertilizer. So that's what I'll do. You know, you just keep giving it love when you, you don't realize you've just, you know, you've loved it to death. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's really one of the hardest parts for growers is, uh, especially new growers. And I was very guilty of this is uh, over management. You, know, you get excited. You see a new amendment that you could add. You see a new thing. And you just start trying it all of like, yeah, just piling stuff on when so much is like simplicity wins so often of less, less water, less fertilizer sometimes, or less craziness on the amendments. It's amazing how often simplicity can win. Mm. So plants crave less. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Awesome. All right. Well, I am going to finish this interview with three rapid fire questions. Okay. Pew, pew. Exactly. They're supposed to be fun and just simple answer. Okay. All right. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Extroverts all day. They let it show. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I supposed to think more before I talk? No, that was the most <laughs> response and I want to respond but don't want to respond at the same time I think it was perfect okay number two can can indoor agriculture feed the world if the world wants to eat salads yes okay number three if you could choose which of the following small space containers would you convert into a home hydroponic system a cowboy boot a classic record player or a cat tower? Well, the record player with the plants spinning around integrated into the record player. So they do a little twirl all day. Oh, for sure. For sure. Awesome. <laughs> also would like to pitch that in the latest book, I made a hydroponic system out of a uh, bidet. Whoa. Where's Very that good part? spot to grow a plant. Very good spot to grow a plant. What? Instead of hydroponic, hydroponic. Mercy. <laughs> someone's someone studied marketing here. <laughs> Instead of mutt, it's gonna say hydropubic. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Told you they would be fun questions. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for the conversation. This was uh, so much fun and really educational. I yeah. really um, enjoyed learning from you today. So yeah, good luck with everything at Area 2 Farms. And uh, I look forward to hearing about all your success. Yay. Thanks, Nadia. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. That was Dr. Nadia Slaba interviewing Tyler Barris of Area 2 Farms for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Jeremy Schechter of Buckeye Relief. I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.